This is SciBite, episode 73 for December 4th, 2012. Hi everyone and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast live Tuesday nights at 7.30pm Pacific at jblive.tv and fresh Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey Heather, happy science to you. Happy science. What are we talking about today? This week we're going to take a look at how sounds are connected to coma patients, water on mercury, subglacial lakes, long-lasting bread, updates on Voyager 1, and curiosity. And as always, take a peek back in history and up in the sky this week. Wow. Uh, every single headline you just mentioned was a news story that I saw go by this week that I was hoping oh, really? we would talk about. I cannot wait for this show. <laughs> so let's get into our first news story. All right, Heather, what is our first story? There's new research that actually suggests a coma patient's chances of surviving and waking up could be predicted by the brain's ability to discriminate sounds in the first 48 hours. This is incredible. And, uh, and uh, this, to me, seems like a huge breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, it's at the very early stages, what they did was it... You know, there has studies before where you test the p- patients days or weeks after a coma set in and kind of look about how the brain is reacting to sounds or stimu- various stimulus. But this study was sp- specifically looking at the first 48 hours to look at how to tell the difference between sound patterns and how that changed over time. And so they took 30 coma patients, ex- ex- uh, had experienced heart attacks, so deprived their brains of oxygen. Ah. Put them all in uh, therapeutic hyperthermia, which is a standard treatment to minimize brain damage. Okay. It's going to bring the body temperature down really low, and it kind of minimizes the brain damage to a lot of different things. And they do this within the first 24 hours of that coma? Yeah. Okay. So they do wow. that. Okay, that's they got to move. Yeah. And then they play the sounds for these patients, so it's like various tones and various locations, you know, kind of makes it sound like it's in different locations and in like the first 24 hours. And then that's like when they're in the hypothermic stage. And then when they're out of it, like a day later, they're at normal body temperatures and they repeated it. So they have, you know, these tones, various tones, interspersed, different pitches, longer, short durations, and taking the brain signals to see how well they can actually discriminate between them. And, you know, compared it to five healthy uh, patients. Now, all of the patients, they, you know, they all showed some sort of reaction the first day. Now, the second day, all of the patients who are still able to discriminate or it actually, if it got worse, then many of those didn't even survive. Mm. If... So the increase or the ability to still um, hear and distinguish those sounds generally meant that within um, so many months, they actually woke up 
and recovered. And as the people wow. who lost lost it, who were did not recover, didn't wake up, or actually died. So it's no, it wasn't actually making a direct um, correlation to how the initial function was, you know, how it was related to the hyperthermia treatment. Because it was when they were in, you know, their body temperature was really low. So, not quite sure how that affected anything. But it's interesting because, you know, you always, you know, I've heard a lot of these stories where you, you talk to a coma patient. Mm-hmm. And you wonder you know, if they can hear you. You wonder if they can hear you. And there are many cases where people come out and it's like, yes, I, I heard voices. I remember, you know, somebody saying something. I know there's patient, there's cases of that. And this is kind of, kind of a, along that same line, I think, where it's the auditory function is there. Um, some kid in the chat room asked, "Does it have to do with vibrations?" It's certainly possible, but the vibrations of sound are really small. Yeah, and they're You'd just have, using tones in these. Yeah, uh, it's just tones. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it was somebody like clapping really loudly, or. Yeah you know, a, a drum or a, you know, some sort of where it's very loud and there's actually a good reverberation. So this really is... Really loud rock music trying to knock me down and making me deaf. That's, you know, that's more vibrations. But tones not, would be very minimal. Am I understanding you correctly? This is sort of the evolution of a, an existing technology where they were doing the tone testing, but what, where it's sort of taking the next step is this, this hypothermia aspect to it. No, it's a new? combination of various things. They've okay. d- always done the hypothermia treatment. Okay. You do that as quickly as you can mm-hmm. in the first oh, 24 right, hours right, should right, you right. be to able slow, to. Right, to slow, right, to slow the damage, right, right, right. Yeah, to slow the da- brain damage down as much as possible. Right, right. Now, they've gone through and they've done these tonal tests to people in comas at various, you know, maybe when they're months into it, maybe a few days into it, just sort of at various points to see how the brain responds. Okay. So you could say, yes, they are hearing these tones. They can recognize that there's different things. Their brain is reacting to it. Now, what this was specifically doing was looking at the first 48 hours and saying, mm-hmm. how does it change over time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Day one versus day two. And then, then, and, and then predicting the trend from that. The, yeah, predicting the a trend yeah. And, and further out an, out an outcome possibly. Wow. Now, of course, there's, this was only 30 patients. They're following up with 120 uh, um, study. Okay. So they can get a, a larger idea, kind of get a better idea of on the whole, whether that's hanging, you know, holds true. And the theory is that, you know, given this in the first 48 hours, you could have some sort of idea of what might happen. You know, depending upon how much it improves or you know, decreases or what it is, it could give you an idea of how quickly some or how likely someone is likely to come out of the coma. Yeah. Of or course. If. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, nothing is 100% yeah. specifically with biology. And, well, everything. The brain is a really mysterious and crazy thing that science <laughs> scratches its own head about. Um, but the whole idea of the fact that you could get this idea. So you can say, hey, this person really improved. It looks like they're going to have a very short recovery time. 
this is the kind of treatment regimen we need to give them. Right. So it gives kind of an idea about, you know, treatment regimens or outcome ideas. So you can kind of prepare for these kind of things. And to me, it also says, you know, there is a direct connection to sound and improvement or deeper. Now, whether you can, whether it is the more you talk to a person or the more they hear, the, uh, I, the better there is, the chances there are. I think some kid in the chat room, uh, or some kids, sorry, I don't know, uh, mm-hmm. brings up an interesting point is with, you know, the brain is in such a reduced capacity with the coma mm-hmm. and in, and in this case, hypothermia, and yet it's still at some level responding you makes you really think about just how low level that wiring is that 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 system must be built in it you know it's well, part of, it's just part of a just low level system that is still functional it's incredible during gestation you're there you know in the stomach mm-hmm. there, you know there is really no sight you're just kind of chilling swimming and but you can hear yeah there's vibrations there's you know play the music to the belly read to the belly so <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, yeah we got we did all that Yep, I, I read to my brothers, forcing my mom to sit down, chaining her to a chair. Yeah. But I was little, there's not much I could do, but I could try to bug her to sit down. <laughs> um, so there's that kind of idea where it is. Yeah. If you think about it, there is that first kind of thing that we really interact with the world on a whole with. And that, that is an interesting predicament. Mm-hmm. But that might actually be there. Yeah, that's, that's deep, Heather, that's deep. Very interesting stuff, Deep and uh, now I'm glad they're expanding it to 120. Imagine if uh, you know what, whatever it would be, five years, twenty years down the road, mm-hmm. where like they really had honed in the science, and, and let's just say they extended this, and they felt like they'd really come to something. Mm-hmm. I almost didn't want to bring it up because it's such a downer, but you also wonder if they could use this type of testing to determine, like a family could determine if they should continue investing in long-term care and things like that. Well, it might. I mean. They can think about that, but I was more thinking along the lines of how likely it is do you need to prepare yourself or think about the various options. Uh. You know, preparing your, you know, preparing, thinking and looking at, all right, maybe we need to look at, you know, you're thinking long-term care or possibly they're going to get better, then we need to look and prepare for, you know, some sort of physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of that's a the element of, I like to it the most is that it, it could yeah. be indicative of uh, a successful regime of therapy or mm-hmm. treatments or medications or yeah. positioning in the hospital by a, by a by a window. I mean, they could but they can measure they can measure and get feedback now and determine mm-hmm. are we making an improvement and that mm-hmm. seems that seems really like the highlight of it. Oh yeah, well, I mean, on the most positive end of it, you were going for the downer. I'll go for the the happy science. Um, <laughs> But I mean, if it looks like there is a drastic increase or can you see, you know, so does it indicate a fast recovery? Then you move towards being able to maintain as much muscle tone, you know, as possible because they're going to, you know, what kind of muscle tone do you, are you looking to keep? Mm-hmm. You know, is it somebody that's going to be out for six months or a year or, you know, so you need to try to do more long-term regimen, trying to maintain the body at a certain level or if it's going to be a short term then you need to move to make sure when they wake up they'll have the best chances of starting to move and recover as quickly as possible right right absolutely um all right well any other thoughts on that one uh no i don't think so it just kind of moves forward to how the brain is reacting to sound and all this to give a better idea and uh 
possibly hope. Yeah, and I think you know uh, that's a good one to get out of the way first because the rest are all pretty exciting. It's all they're all yeah. kind of all up from here. So better yeah, yeah. down. It's like a real dramatic film. So uh, why don't we uh, take a pause right here, right before we get into uh, the upswoop of the show, and uh, just remind yeah. folks that uh, Cybite is uh, a wonderfully, wonderfully, wonderfully th- sponsored p- program by our viewers, not by any commercial sponsor. We don't have. Uh, NASA writing this big checks or uh, whatever. That would be kind of awesome. <laughs> I mean, that would be like if NASA, for whatever reason, wanted to sponsor Cybite, how would you say no to that? But yeah. we are sponsored by you guys. And uh, there's there's a couple of different ways you can do that. But really during the holidays, the way I've been mentioning the most just because it seems like it's it's a good opportunity for you guys to uh, help us out without really hurting the budget and doing the shopping you might be doing. Anyways, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and scroll down to the bottom of the site. You'll find links down there for our affiliate sites. You probably know about these by now. But I just want to mention a couple of things. Netflix makes an excellent last-minute holiday gift. Now, I'm not trying to say be that guy or girl, but I'm just saying, if you find yourself in a situation where you're going over to a family or friend member's house and you forgot to get them something... You just hit that Netflix link there first, put in their email address. By the time you get there, they got the email and you, they give you a little nice little gifty thing you can print out and put in a card or in a box if you want. That's what I did. Not that I ever did this. No, uh, no and, you could totally no. say, yeah, I, I timed it. Timed it, so yep. that the, So that the email came today. They actually do give you that option too. So if you did Me? like want to plan and so then somebody would get it like Christmas morning or whatever, whatever morning. I didn't want to. No. Uh, whatever, whatever. Uh, you could, you could, so you can time it too, but uh, I didn't have that uh, flexibility at the time. <laughs> uh, if you grab our uh, browser extensions, it'll automatically uh, do our affiliate stuff for you. In fact, it also does a few other sites that aren't in there. And uh, Heather, you put an excellent pick in the yes. show this week. Okay. Star Trek The Next Generation, season two on what? Blu-ray, Blu-ray. and HD. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So pretty. I, I was watching some uh, season one this last week when I was uh, ill. And that was very nice. So I was uh, looking very pretty. Season one, I got, and uh, I am not disappointed at all. The sound oh, is no. better. The picture is better. It is four by three, um, but everything looks better. It's really cool. So, uh, anyways, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And if you grab that, it uh, it will be uh, it'll be it'll be affiliated, and a portion of the purchase will go to Cybite. And uh, you know what? This is interesting. Amazon has it for sixty four ninety nine, and I. I could have sworn. Okay, so the regular list price is 100. Okay, yeah. So usually, yeah, they're, I wonder if they're doing like a launch price. Anyways, because yeah. usually the Star Trek seasons are over $100. So $64.99 uh, from Amazon right now. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And thank you to everybody who uh, supports these shows by doing that, by uh, sponsoring us. You are our sponsor. And that's yes. wonderful. I love that. I, I mean, I really, you make really the science think that's happy. Great. And why not do it that way if we can? If we can make it work, I say let's do it. All right, Heather. Well, with that out of the way, let's move on to the news bite. Oh, all right, Heather. What is the first story in the news bite? All right. Mercury, that little ball of rock really <laughs> close to the sun, really hot. Right. It has water. Now, how can that be? Now, there's been speculation on this for like 20 years. Even in like 1991, Earth astron- uh, you know, Earthbound astronomers, they you know, had radar signals and received results back that said there could be ice at both the poles. This is kind of we're stepping this is kind of where the permanently shaded craters on the moon people said, yeah, there could be water there. Huh. Similar term Mercury, these permanently shaded locations 
inside craters or things like that are very cool. If they're never seeing the sun, then there's a drastic... So it's just the ambient temperature then. So like yeah, maybe, yeah, I mean, you can get as hot as 800 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> that's, you know, exposed to the sun. So you're going to have to use some really strong SPF sunscreen. But if you climb into one of these permanently shaded craters, then you're going to be chilling with some ice. Actual ice? Yeah. It's that cold? Oh, yeah. There's... Well, the water ice is going to be there as water. It can't survive as liquid. Without an atmosphere, it would mm-hmm. boil off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if as a as a solid as ice, it could be there. That makes now, sense. Actually, you know, they've seen radar pictures being back that show white areas that they kind of suggested was water ice. But now the Messenger spacecraft, it's been ah. circling around Mercury. They've actually been able to confirm it, get over those sections of the poles. And spot it. Now, they're shining it down with a laser. It, it's fairly weak laser. Mm. Like shining a flashlight weak. But they can tell bright, like icy areas from darker areas. And you, they can also see hydrogen. That's part of what they were thinking about on the, you know, on the moon or on Mars especially. You see these, you read the hydrogen levels. And... Water is H2O. Mm-hmm. So there, so you look, there's a whole bunch of hydrogen in these locations. You can say, that may probably be held up in water. And you can use the radar to see something's really you know, shiny if it's very smooth and it has a lot of hydrogen. The combination, you can say, all right, that's water ice. Now they can see it from like, most of them is uh, 85. Five degrees or higher on the on the moon, on Mercury, should I say? But they're kind of scattered about a little bit as far as like sixty-five degrees north. So this is all around the North Pole. Now they think the South Pole probably has ice, since this one does too. If the North Pole does in permanently shattered crater, shadowed craters, then the Southern Pole most likely does too. But the orbit of uh, of Messenger, the little um, satellite, has not really gone above that region, so we're not able to shine the lasers down specifically for that. So we're making assumptions. We don't have any direct readings from that yet. Mm. Now it looks like it's not just straight out facing the the universe. It's probably got about four inches or so of dust or surface you know, material. Dirty water. More like dust. It's sort of thermally insulating it. So you have, you know, the ice slick on your driveway. <laughs> yeah. And then somebody is very handily dumped out their, their sandbox or the dirt so that it's kind of hiding the ice. And it's keeping that area sort of cool so that when you step on it, you slide and fall and hopefully not land on other ice. Yeah. But that's kind of it. So, huh? So, what do we do with this now? Anything? I mean, just like we ever like. Okay, well, if we ever get out there, we need to get a little pit, uh, a little uh, pit stop for some water. We can stop the mercury now. Is that is that what we can use this information for? Uh, sure. <laughs> if you're if you're willing to use the SPF three thousand for that <laughs> for that uh eight hundred degrees Fahrenheit, uh, you can volunteer for that mission. I just think it's fascinating. We keep finding water in cool places. Uh, well, I mean, 
at least we have in the past. I don't know if I should say keep finding water, but that you would never actually. I guess I'd never. I always thought mercury was dry as a rock, right? Well, yeah, that's you know that's kind of the the surface assumption, but there have been these sort of. I was surprised how widespread the theories of water were and how far back they went, oh, actually. Really? So, just because I haven't been searching Mercury, I haven't looked that inward yet. You know, it was very Mars-related, because I'm totally, totally, un, I mean, totally, yeah, biased, right. I'll admit. And Venus is interesting, but I haven't really looked at Mercury all that much. But So, <laughs> they're... But for the satellite, they're actually looking to you know, alter its orbit so they can actually look at the southern pole most specifically. And of course, it will putter out of fuel in 2014 or 2015. Uh. And they'll probably try to angle the decreasing orbit as much as they can to kind of get as much data as they can as it circles inward to crash upon the surface of Mercury. Nice. But really what this, a lot of this does is it shows us we're getting scientific data on various planets and environments. So we see this kind of a location, this kind of a rocky planet, this close to a sun at this temperature holds water. So when we're looking out into the universe, we have a better idea of this is what we see here. We probably see the same thing out there. Although the more we look out there, we're the oddballs. Our little solar system is the oddball. Mm-hmm. But kind of gives a, a baseline idea of what we can see and what and mm. we see something and okay well water could exist in the craters we've seen it we have evidence of it yeah hmm. so it's just an in- another interesting step and in sort of evidential proof right and uh you know once again like you said Shows us we shouldn't always make assumptions about some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Heather. Well, our next story is about life, but not as we know it. Yes. And that's not leading into a song even. (laughs) No. So we've talked about some of these remote um, subglacial lakes in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. 65 feet below the icy surface. You know, they've been trying to drill down to them and it's taken a number of years, you know, where they work at the warmest time of the year. And then they sort of have to pack up no matter where they are in there. They're like, you know, two days from being able to do it. Nope. They say it's time to go home. Oh, It's time to go home. Brutal. We, we don't get any more options unless you want to stay there until the next season. Right. Right. Trust but, us. You want to leave. Trust us. Yeah. You really want to leave. Yeah. But they're actually able to drill into one of the lakes. Okay. What did we get? This is one of the most re- most remote ones. Was there a monster down there? Huh? Not a monster. Oh. But they were actually able to see life. Really? Little, I mean, it's brine. So it's not like it's little fishes and things tapping on the, the camera, you know, on a camera that's not there going, hey, you didn't knock. This is, it is the largest lake. It's, these lakes are really unique. There is absolutely no oxygen. They're mostly frozen. They're like the highest nitrous oxide levels of any natural body on Earth. It's like six times saltier than seawater. No kidding. At an average temperature of minus eight degrees Fahrenheit. And you're able to stay on liquid because it's so salty. 
and it actually had a wide variety of bacteria, but without any source of energy from the sun. So it has like no energy from the sun. So it's probably been isolated. There's like been no interaction with the world for about 3,000 years. So th- this, is, this is Brian that's been around for a little while. Wow. Now, of course, they followed really strict protocols. They've been, had specialized equipment. And actually, I didn't know this, but they have uh, like tents. You know, you have see the scientists in their little white booties and gloves. And they go into a clean room. These are clean tents. These are clean tents. They go in and there's like, you have to wear your booties and your equipment, you know, to keep the whole area as sterile as possible. So, you know, they drilled down and they drilled just enough into it to sort of break into that area. And they pull back and the water actually goes up into the sample and around it and freezes. Oh, okay. So it caps itself off. So then you pull out the core and you look at the ice from from the lake. And so they see all this, you know, this core and they're able to, and it's interesting how they're, they're trying to figure out where it's possibly getting its energy from. Maybe thinking about the possible chemical mm interactions that are going on to say all right well maybe various things are interacting with each other so that you can certain chemical interactions should i say produce heat so look at and the sediment say all right iron rich sediment can generate nitrous oxide hydrogen maybe that's creating some of the the energy enough to support this microbial life. Yeah, it's not so, very complicated, right? It doesn't take a ton of energy. Well, it take a little bit, but apparently it takes it doesn't take huh. what well, has enough. So how do they begin to unravel that question? How do they get the answer to that? Well, they'll look at what they have very very closely. This is sort of an initial, oh my gosh, we see a whole bunch of stuff. Now they go through and super analyze every little bacteria that they can see. Now, the next step would be to look at the sediment in this lake. Oh, yeah, sure. So, could you go down and you get some of the sediment? And then you could see, all right, now we have a specific, yeah, we can do a specific analysis between the chemical interactions of the brine, water, and the sediment. And all of these sort of we come together to say, all right, these are environmental limits for, for life. These are the kind of places that bacteria and can live. So we've seen, I mean, you could go out and you could say the subsurface waters of Saturn's moon and Cladius, uh, Jupiter's moon Europa. We've seen that those have sort of subsurface, essentially subglacial lakes or oceans. They're like, well, it's, it's going to be this cold and this salty. Well, apparently it doesn't matter, even if it doesn't have the sun's energy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's even more kind of saying, all right, well, they're still possible. 
So move forward. All right, what kind of genome sequences do we see here? What yeah. kind of chemical interactions are going on? Wouldn't that and be like, interesting it, if it's very different? I mean, oh, well, I, I don't know how different it would be. I yeah, mean, it's only not. been yeah, yeah, it's only been separated for three thousand years. I know, I know, Heather. I'm just saying, what if? Wouldn't that be cool? Okay, maybe okay. aliens crashed down there. No, uh-huh. okay, and, and and buried underneath. I'm just picturing what an awesome sidebite episode that would make if it was true. Okay. Yeah, you know, that would be a great episode. Yeah, I, I don't think I would be breaking news. No. Don't, I'm pretty sure alien invasion or aliens chucking out in the backyard under glaciers because that would be the place. Right. Well, you never know. They might, they might, they may not have gotten to that phase. Yet. So you just got to keep watching the story and keep us posted when that. You know, oh, okay. When, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. And, and if, if there's alien invasion, I'm sure I'll be the first to let everyone know. Absolutely. Least, I'm sure. At least if they catch us live. Right. Yeah. We can't say if they download, who knows, right? But, it, you know. Well, yeah. Yeah. All right, Heather, what are your thoughts on that one? No, I don't think the aliens are invading from there, but we'll see what these uh, microbial communities show to us. All right, Heather, I'm looking forward to it. And that brings us to the Two Bite News. Two Bite News. <laughs> say, hey, did you know about Two News and its bites with the Two Bite News on side? All right, Heather. Now, this next story, if it pans out, uh, could solve a big problem we have in this household. Yes. Well, in lots of households, there's, an, there's a company that's saying if you using a specific type of microwave technology, <laughs> it can make bread last two months. Oh, my God. Now. <laughs> Why not take bread and combine it with the microwave? <laughs> yeah, I'll say it now and I'll say it later. Dumping your bread in the microwave that you have on your counter will not make it last two months. Don't eat it two months down the road. It will be, it will have alien life. So, going back, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that again later. <laughs> so, the whole idea is that there's a specific type of uh, microwave equipment. It's industrial, so it has a lot of different uh, frequencies, much more than you have on the countertop or on the store, you know, in the store if you don't have one. It's more like it looks more like a CT scanner. Yeah, it than, looks pretty industrial. Yeah, it's really it was eventually developed to kill or like um, very resistant staph bacteria, uh, salmonella, and things like that. Oh god, their web page is disgusting. Yeah. So then they realized, huh? We can kill bread mold in about ten seconds. Oh. So looking at all the various frequencies. That allows much more uniform heating of something. You know, if you stick your your can of soup or my chili in the in the microwave and I heat it up, there's like one good warm spot, and there's a whole bunch of cold spots. So you kind of have to like mix everything together and hope that the various temperatures meld together. <laughs> yep. Now this is more equal heating with all the various frequencies. Mm. So it, I mean, it's currently used to preserve. Um, fre- it, well, it could be used to preserve things like poultry or produce. So it's it's kind of interesting that it's a very complex system that may break down, even if it's not going to be in your house. Maybe they treat it before they ship it out to you. Well, this article has a picture of uh, Wonder Bread, and are they actually trying this now? Is this is this something well, that like a, like an actual shipping company is actually getting close to working on, or do you know? Is this still? In- well, if they said they specifically were able to kill bread mold in ten seconds, then yeah, the company um, micros up. Um, they're working on it. Of course they're working on it. And now, in the same way that 
I work on things in my lab. When will it see space or when, you know, in my case, or when will it see, yeah. um, you know, the, the store shelf? Right. It's a big question mark, especially yeah. with food. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge question mark. And, and but, also companies just have to debate if they want to be first to the market with something like this or if they want to let somebody else try it and see how that goes. Yeah. I mean, do you want to sell the bread that'll last two months? I, you know, if and if, somebody if doesn't it have to safe, buy more bread in a week because it's gone stale. I'm not. I'm not big on bread. We actually don't actually buy very much bread, but uh, yeah. that's actually part of the problem. Is we always keep a little exactly. in the house, and so you know, I I might go a week or two without even eating a slice of bread, but then I'll make some for the kids and I'll have a little bite of it. I'm like, oh, it's bad already. Can't can't make it. Sorry, kids. You know. It's, yeah, it's, you're like, all oh, right. You make like a sandwich or two over two days, and then you, something else comes up, and then you go back. And you're like, shake the bread ball. I bade bag and you're like, oh, here you go, trash can. It's your time for lunch. Yep. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like I'll get like fre- that. So what I've also noticed, it will see, this would be great if they could put it on the counter because if I get something really freshly baked, that stuff seems to go bad the first. That stuff yeah. goes, gets bad right away. Yeah. I'd love to be able to zap it. All right, Heather. Well, good news. The Cybite 2000 here has got a red light flashing. And I believe red light either means the end of time or up oh, spacecraft update. Oh. That's good. That's a close one. Yeah. No, we got a really uh, far out there update this week, don't we? Yes. Voyager 1. We continue to hear about it every once in a while as it inches its way closer and closer to interstellar space. Now, we're not there yet. But data from two instruments has actually shown entering this high, what they're calling the magnetic highway region. It's this lots of charged particles from the sun's magnetic field and interstellar magnetic fields, and they're just, they're swishing by. There's like a very dense, high-moving zone of all these magnetic particles. So, they're still thinking it's just inside the bubble of the solar system and not into interstellar space yet. I'll tell you, the headlines, I mean, the headlines that I've seen have all been like, uh, Voyager 1 has left the solar system, and people are really, really freaking out but you're saying it's not that so much as it is no. it's just like in this it's like in the fast lane now it's yeah it, passing the fast lane so it's it's passing the fast of, lane it's like almost yeah, across the border think of it as <laughs> you're in we're inside an onion and we have a theory about how many layers out we go we're like okay cool and we're sending Voyager 1 out and then it crosses a new layer we're like whoa cool I didn't know there was another layer sooner or later it'll be outside the onion and like each layer you pass you know, you have as many scientific theories as you want, but you're getting to the outside layers. They'll make thinner and thinner and thinner, but you're not sure how many there are until you go through them all. I see. Uh, those of you who are watching the visual feed, we have a, they have a pretty good visual, and Heather has it linked in the show notes. Uh, and yeah, I can kind of see as it kind of moves farther away, there's like less and less resistance almost, or current, I guess. I don't know. It's just sort of, you get the, there's various sort of gaps where it's a low area, sort of as, like a lull in between currents. And then there's very fast interspacing going against each other, lots of energy zones. So you're just kind of going through all these various zones of how the, how the particles are interacting with each other. You know, I mean, you're seeing the interstellar particles. And sort of, so it's how it's interacting with what we have here and kind of seeing all the different zones as we go in, out farther and farther out. Now, you'll continue to see all of these, oh my gosh, we're in interstellar space. No, we're not yet. 
We haven't left the solar system yet. They're going to say that a whole bunch of times because every time it'll be look really cool and we'll get people to say, all right, have you seen that? That drives me crazy. Yeah, it drives me crazy too. So there's, you know, there's like the three major things that they're looking for. And they're, they've hit two. Now the third item that continues to hold us back is that the overall magnetic field in the solar system goes a certain way. Now they're waiting for it. Once you get out to interstellar space, it will almost certainly be in a different direction. Ah. So you're waiting to enter another magnetic field that go that's different from the one we have. So the the strength of the fields is going up and down and how much of the interstellar is interacting. So it goes ten times more intense than you know before. But the the overall fields will show us when we cross that final barrier. Yeah. You'll let us know. Oh you'll yeah, tell me when it's you legit. Know. You'll tell me it's Yeah. Okay. I, I will say when I start throwing a party and I go, yes, it, it really is. The third check mark has left the building. Then then we'll be cool. Okay. In the meantime, I, I've got everyone in the chat room hungry for onion rings now. But yeah, uh, yeah. That, sorry. You're the one that brought up the onion, Heather. Well, it's the best theory I could take. If you're inside the onion, you have all these different layers. You don't know how far it is to the outside until I, you're there. I agree. I, I, I follow you. I just think it's interesting once again to see... Uh, NASA copying Star Trek. So here goes V'ger, out to get in its encounter with the Borg. Well, with that covered, Heather, and filed away for our this week's update, what do you say we uh, blast off to Mars? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. You see that right there? It's a wheel. So I, for whatever reason, came across like some best of. Uh, oh, because Dylan wanted to, Dylan had a, saw something on the iPad and wanted to know what the Mars rover was, and so I looked up some Mars rover clips on YouTube, and uh-huh. that clip you have there in that bump is in every one of those YouTube clips too. <laughs> People love that moment. So yes. now uh, last week we thought we might be getting a big announcement this week. Yes, it was kind of teased were... like on Bloomberg or NPR or something, right? Yeah, there was a lot of hype. There was an interview on NPR. That's what it was. And the guy was like, "Oh my gosh, get your history books out." We're ready. So and then they came back out and they went, um, don't, don't, don't hold the balls, balls and giant parties yet. Aww. Yeah, they came back. Um, I think, yeah, it was after Sidebite last week, about mid to late last week. And they came out and they're like, essentially, yeah, glare at the guy. He may have been a little excited, glare at the guy. It kind of felt like between the reading between the lines, wow. that was what's going on. They're like, all right, he was excited. It was kind of what you said last week. You're like, but he said history books. And it's like, well, science history books. Scientists get excited when you're going to like change just a little bit. We get really excited. Uh, uh, hun- I, I read a headline today mm-hmm. that uh, 100 NASA scientists uh, retired or quit uh, over uh, them not releasing information. Really? Have you heard that? Okay, so I think it's crap, by the way, but that's what I heard. Well, so I was wondering, because yeah. one of the other headlines I read was they were going to talk more about f- finding plastic. I th- that's, that's the headline I read, but of course we haven't seen anything on that. 
Yeah, I haven't seen anything or even heard anything about that. Uh, it's like just, so what is it? Nothing? Absolutely nothing? Well, I mean, there were other things that happened, too. Um, I mean, you know, we've hit the, the milestones, and it's moving on to its next location. It still, stu- it still does have that scoop um, from where they were to kind of retest something. Uh, last week, I talked that possibly talking about the radiation levels. Now, that wasn't part of the big announcement that they made, but they did come out with that data showing um, essentially that a round trip of like Martian levels are about the same as what you get on the space station. Oh, so survivable. Oh, yes, very survivable. That interstellar space is actually much higher. So heading there and back, say... 180 trip out days out so six months there stay there six months back you get a total radiation dosage of what they call 1.1 sieverts which is a specific type of unit of radiation about a hundred rem now so you know ct scans are quite a bit less than that but you go through but essentially one sievert is what the esa caps off as that's your limit for to be an astronaut so it's, I mean, it's not all that unduly far out there. Is this is this XKCD chart you linked legit? Yes, it this is. This is awesome. Yeah, the, their science is actually <laughs> science. Yeah. And it's a very visual, very good. Um, so, yeah, that I liked that. Very visual representation of how much radiation is, you know, what. And they have like yearly dose from natural uh, potassium in the body. Yeah. Um, a mammogram, uh, uh, EPA yearly limit on radiation exposure to a single member of the public. You guys go check this out. Heather has this linked in the show notes. It's really cool. It's really visual, too. XKC is so awesome. Yeah. But so like the, you know, the whole trip, you know, 1.1 sieverts. Um, I don't know, about 275 years on the surface of the earth doing absolutely nothing, getting no x-rays, getting no CT scans, you know, making no trips from New York to Los Angeles. You don't fly, live at sea level, and you never break any bones, then you're good. But, you know, I mean, you increase that levels from just flying cross-country airlines or you mm. know, CT scans or x-rays, obviously. So what you're saying is you're giving me more reasons not to fly. I'm telling, <laughs> you, I'm telling you, I think 2013 needs to be where I do a Jupiter road trip. And I just make it, and I, we do a couple of meetups along the way, and uh, I don't know. I got nothing else other than that, but I think that'd be a lot of fun. Okay. And this be, well, you know, because of science, because of science. Oh, well, yeah, of course, science. But, so they did do the radiation levels, and that's one of the theories that I had. I also thought that there was a chance for organic compounds. Um, I said, you know, maybe hydrocarbons, and that very tiny chance that they'd actually announce something about nitrogen. Mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. they did come back and say, all right, settle down. Um, we don't have slime. Uh, save that for your subglacial lakes. But they did actually announce. Wait, you think that they think that if they went to the subglacial lakes, uh, lakes they might uh, find slime? No, what I was saying is that they don't have any news about bacteria. If you want news about that, search under under the glaciers. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, that was that was science's version of a joke. That's good. Science I isn't gotcha. very funny. No, that was science good. isn't very funny. No, That's but okay. it was you know as far as science goes, that was pretty good. Yeah. Science is funny to science. That's okay. 
But what they did find is water and sulfur and chlorine-containing substances and some other things. So now there's no definitive detection of Martian organics. One, I knew they probably weren't going to say anything definitive. Right. In the first three months of a mission, doubt it. Especially in a two-year minimally planned mission. I mean, if you're going on, you know, a trip, and then, like, right at the beginning, you see something, you're like, cool. Will that, you know, will that indicate the rest of my trip? I don't know. If I see a couple of road signs in the first 20 minutes of my trip, does that mean I'll see them all the time? Maybe I go through uh, Kansas and all I see are sunflowers. That doesn't, that won't say necessarily what's going to happen. Right. It's a big planet. Yes. So, they've actually said, you know, they have possibly identified oxygen and chlorine. No, the call it is perchlorate. Now, what it is, is it chemically reacts to other things. They found it in the Arctic when the Phoenix Lander, we talked about it uh, long ago, when the Phoenix Lander landed on the you know, Arctic Circle of Mars, essentially. They're able to see these salts, essentially. Now, those kind of things are obviously sol- salts soluble in water. So it makes sense you see these locations where there was previously water. Now you see various types of salts. Um, you see those on Earth in very arid environments. Um, you can also see it from, it can actually form from various ozone and photochemical reactions. Now they know for a fact that the chlorine they see is Martian. They're absolutely certain of that. You can do that with um, methane, so one carbon organics. They also saw, but the carbons may be from Earth. Maybe. Hmm. So that could well, be a big deal, though, if it's not. So they just have to keep kind of going to find out, right? Because they, would the theory be yeah. it like traveled with the rover? Yeah. That yeah. some some sort of minimal contamination with this high high sensitivity instruments. Any little bit of in- anything that, you know, came from Earth is going to show up there. So the whole idea is, all right, well, shake it out. Pretty soon there will be, if there are contaminants from Earth, it's not going to last very long. So they have that other scoop. Maybe they put, you know, another, some other sample through all the works. Try to essentially flush out what they can. Hmm. So, kind of move forward. The carbon thing, though, could be a big deal as they keep going if it keeps showing up, right? Yes. That will definitely be a much bigger idea. Much bigger deal. That's exciting, Heather. Yes. So, definitely not the big announcement a lot of people were expecting, obviously. Well, or hoping might be more more accurate. Yeah. Now, I was 99.9% sure they weren't going to say they found bacteria. Even if they did. Even if they found... Or fossilized or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Fossilized anything. Dried out anything. They weren't going to say that. Even if they had 100% positive evidence. You think? No. Not in the first three months of a mission. Why not? Because essentially, exactly contamination. Those kind of things where maybe there's a misreading an instrument. Maybe it's contamination. You want to see it in... So you have one location, huh. you'll have, you know, repeat the 
the well, test. Wow. That you just see blows it twice. me away. Maybe, that seems like such a massive discovery. It would be really hard to sit on that. Well, yeah, it'd be definitely hard to sit on it. But the people in charge, I mean, what do you do? You see something and then you come back and you're like, oh, wait. Uh, sorry. John sneezed in the other room and he wasn't wearing a mask. And <laughs> it floated in. Yeah, that'd be pretty embarrassing. So the more, the bigger the announcement, the more earth-shattering information it is, the more you want to take your time, the more you want to analyze it from every different direction 10 million times. So they're, they're going to continue to look at it. They're going to see what happens in various locations. I mean, they're traveling along on an area that's very similar right now. So, you know, they had that one wind drift of, of regolith, of sand. Now they're going to go, their next idea is to go to a rock and do some analysis on a rock. But in the meantime, as they're traveling to their next location, maybe they see another wind, wind drift of regolith so they can pick up another scoop of sand, analyze it, kind of see how things are changing over the course of this little plane as they head to their mountain and see how things repeat. Um, unfortunately for Adurs, there are no total recall Martian ruins <laughs> or 2001 monoliths. Um, so there's not going to be anything you know, crazy though, like that. As a, as, a, as a pragmatist, I'm pretty happy with carbon. I really am pretty yeah. happy with carbon because that's, oh, that's yes. pretty neat and pretty significant. And, but I'll be reserved. I'll try not to get excited. I'll wait for them to continue to report that they have keep finding it. Yeah, the, what I'd see as the, as the big plus, as the big thing, would be hydrocarbons, simple hydrocarbons. Yeah. That means um, hydrogen and carbon. Now, we know that there's hydrogen. Oh, okay. Okay. Because we know that they saw water in the soil, of course, but that is completely obvious. The average soil on Mars, anything as low as 5%, as high as you know, 15% of the dirt itself is water. So dry like a desert, but it's still there. So we know that that's there. So hmm. there's hydrogens in the soil. Right. Now, if maybe those connect to some, if there's carbons, they connect to some carbons then you get those simple hydrocarbon chains. And those are needed to get the, the bacteria or the fossilized ancient bacteria or things like that. Very interesting, Heather. Yeah, hmm. yeah and... It's like, it's like tiny, tri, tiny little eyedrop-sized bits of science at a time. And it's like yes. I just want a whole glass of science. Yeah, well, the, the crazy awesome... Super clean water that you really want. You only get a little bit of a time until we know yeah. that it's safe for you to drink. Just not how it works. Just not, nope. not an instant gratification thing. All right, Heather, well, any nope. other uh, thoughts or notes on that one? Now, as we inch forward on Mars, we'll continue to see what kind of answers are there. And <clears throat> every week there's new science. Every week. And it makes me happy. And if some fool approaches you claiming otherwise... Maybe they found something. Heather has the links, and you can go find those in our show notes and send it to their face and be like, you're wrong, and I'm smarter than you because I listened to Sidebite. All right, Heather. Well, uh, come on. Jump in the time machine because it's time okay. to take a look back. Here we go. Okay. Close the door. Close the door. Oh, wait. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, I didn't realize you'd be going so far. I didn't. Oh, I don't know if I put enough gas in this thing. Nope, we're okay. We're all Okay. Right. I want to go back. All right. 
Sorry, Heather. Uh, here okay. we go. I didn't. I didn't realize it was going to be this far. We went, we're going 222 years ago this week in science, December 11th, 1790. Yes, that's a long way back. It is the first recorded sighting of the aurora borealis. It took place in New England. They said a mysterious face appeared in the skies, and everyone, of course, freaks out yeah, because <laughs> strange things happen in the sky, and people freak out. You know. Solar eclipses happen. The sun's blocked from the sky. Yep, end of the world. Still freaks me out. Just yeah, looking well, at the thing. I mean, if I saw, if I, if I had never seen that in my life, and then I went out and saw that over my house, I would absolutely figure the atmosphere was on fire. Yeah. So a few people were worried. Um, you know, maybe it was the end of the world. So, but in general, it does. You know, it appears in September, October, March, April. All sorts of different colors, green, red, white. These are all things that I read because I'm not far up enough in the yeah. earth to yeah. see such things. Occasionally, Colorado can see such things. Occasionally. Uh. But they said, you know, essentially, this evening about 8 o'clock, there was a bright and red light in the sky. Like a light arises from a house on fire. It spread itself through the heavens. I bet. I mean, uh, I just we, without 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 the internet or school or the science to know about this, it would have seemed, it would have seemed like uh, I don't know some yeah. sort of some sort of I would think disaster. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Well, but, uh, uh, you have uh, you have included in the show notes a link to a book called Northern Lights: The Science Myth and the Wonder of the Aurora Borealis, and uh, this yes. has probably got some great stories in it. Yes, it's a lot of beautiful pictures there's some science there's some folklore stories to go with it um a lot of things sort of interspersed into the pretty picture so you can look at the pretty picture for a little while and like ah okay i'm ready for a, a couple of paragraphs of of Story. lore or history yeah. or science but huh. lot lots of beautiful pictures that really unaltered just go up there i believe in alaska and take a bunch of pictures. Oh, yeah. They had a group that took pictures uh, in 2002, which marked the peak viewing time for Northern Lights in the 11-year cycle. And yes. they uh, incorporate those that photography into this book. Yeah. Wow. So, so it, it, I think the most interesting part of that would be how to take and when to look. You know, I might get this for my dad. I think I might get that for my dad. That's a great pick, Heather. Thank you. Not a problem. We have a link to that in the show notes if you would like to grab a copy of it for yourself as well. All right, well, uh, with the uh, past out of the way, let me recalibrate the Cybi 2000 so we can look up into the sky this week. That's right. Thursday, December the 6th, about in the middle of the night, you can see the last quarter moon rising in the, the and heading up to the eastern sky by morning. And in general this week, the most interesting in the sky, Mercury, Venus, and Saturn. Mm. Uh, southeast at dawn, they're going to actually form a little diagonal line. Venus is going to be the brightest one, and Saturn will be to the upper right of it, and Mercury will be to the lower left. So Saturn will be, it's, it's going to fly with its wings, so it'll be up, and Mercury is going to be weighed down by the new water that we've discovered and be to the lower left. <laughs> oh, Heather, another science funny. Random, random things to remember. Of course, Mars totally awesome planet in totally unbiased my opinion you'll see low in the southwest sky in twilight this week and jupiter is actually the star almost the star of the show this week really um sunset to sunrise 
it is at opposition, which means it is directly opposite of the sun from us, 180 degrees away. So we're going to see it the entire night. Oh, You'll cool. see it rise in the east, move higher into the southern sky around midnight, and it'll set in the west about sun, sunrise. So the complete opposite was, essential, was exactly on December 2nd to 3rd. With this whole week, you'll be able to see it all night long. Right on. So Jupiter will be blazing away. You'll have the Mercury, Venus, and Saturn hanging out in its little diagonal. So those will be the, the most awesomes this week. Mars is kind of taking a back row. Well, that's Backseat okay. Jupiter, that's okay. I, I like it. Jupiter getting a little attention. You guys can, yeah. you can go see uh, the, the specifics on the timing and location. If you see something in the sky, you spot it. You're like, whoa, what, the, what was that? Go look in the show notes. Uh, Heather's got it all plugged in there, and you guys can see it. All right, Heather. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this week's show, doesn't it? I think so. Wow, that was a fun show. Now, of course, uh, people can follow t- uh, Heather on Twitter. She is JB underscore Mars underscore base on Twitter. And uh, you can watch us live on Tuesdays at uh, 8 or nope, 7.30 p.m. Pacific at jblive.tv. Of course, you can email SciBite at jupiterbroadcasting.com. All right, Heather, well, thank you for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, to tune in- for tuning in to this week's episode of SciBite. And we'll see you right back here next week.